Okay. Remember, uh, this coming Tuesday night, for those of you who watch at home, we're going to have a three-hour special with Dr. James White, who's coming uh, up, flying up from Arizona to sit on the stage, and we're going to converse, and I uh, think it'll be interesting, so just a reminder for you. Let's get into our verses, chapter 16. We've already talked through the first five uh, vials that are being poured out. Remember, these are the last things poured out. Uh, we, we had the seals, and then we had the trumpets, and now we have the bowls or vials of judgment being poured out upon the earth, and we're at the sixth today. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. And they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and see his shame. And he gathered them together into a place called the, in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon, and the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven and from the throne of God, saying, It is done. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was an earthquake, such as was not since men, excuse me, such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. And, the, and we're going to stop there. We'll cover 19 next week. So, back to the sixth angel with the sixth bowl or vial poured out upon the earth. You guys have been patient. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates. Think about this. The great river Euphrates. How much does it apply to us today? What's happening with the great river Euphrates? How applicable is this to our day and age? And how applicable is it to their day and age? That the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. So we see that the sixth judgment of trumpets and of bulls is tied to the Euphrates River. So again, there is an overlap of what happens with the trumpets there's an, uh, to what happens with the bulls. And here we see a tie to the Euphrates River. Now in history, by way of a strategy to overcome Babylon, a guy named Cyrus the Persian diverted the Euphrates River. And uh, he dried it up, so to speak. And that's how he conquered Babylon in 536 B.C. By diverting the river away from the walls of Babylon. And then this allowed the army to march under the wall and overtake the city of uh, the king Belshazzar. So, without very much resistance. So this was a strategic move that happened in the Old Testament, Five. Uh, 36 B.C., Old Testament history. God, we know, helped his people escape from bondage, Egypt, when uh, he dried up the Red Sea. It says that Moses crossed on the land as if it were dry ground. Okay, so he really dried that thing up. 
And then we also know that in Joshua 3.9 that the river Jordan was dried up by God so that the uh, nation of Israel could cross. So it's interesting that here we are in the last phase of judgment being poured out upon the Gehei, not the cosmos, upon the area, the oikomenia, the Gehei or oikomenia, it's one of those two words, being poured out and by God and it is a judgment upon them. So where he saved them through uh, the Red Sea and the River Jordan by drying the river up, now he is going to destroy them by drying up the Euphrates. So it's kind of like a new scripture, a revelation calls Jerusalem both Egypt and Babylon, spiritually Babylon, spiritually Egypt now. And we have, we've talked about that. Well, now we have a new Babylon that's going to fall under the hand of a new Cyrus. And that's how I would say, uh, say it. History tells us that this vision mirrors an invasion of Aspasian and his armies, uh, now led by Titus, his son, uh, and that Vespasian's uh, son Titus brought in reinforcements that were uh, through the Euphrates uh, area. Josephus says that they came from, the, uh, came from, quote, the region of the Euphrates in the east. So we have Jerusalem the new Babylon, the new spiritual Egypt, and the new vial is poured out, and the Euphrates dries up, and it opens the way for these uh, kings of the east to come in and do their destruction. John continues with some real wild stuff now, ties greatly to Exodus, and he says, verse 13, And I saw three unclean spirits, like frogs, Come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. And then he tells us what they are. For they are the spirits of devils, working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and the whole world, to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. So we have... A parallel now to the plagues that were in Egypt. We had those up on the board last week, how there's parallels between the vials, the, uh, the trumpets, and the plagues in Egypt. Uh, I suggest that natural Egypt gave us, was judged by, by natural frogs, ribbit frogs, okay? Actually, the frogs came out, and that's part of what happened to them. But spiritual Egypt, which is what Jerusalem has become, according to Revelation, was judged with spiritual frogs. And we'll talk about why frogs and what that is imagery of in a second. So he says, I saw unclean spirits that were like frogs. Okay, so we didn't, he didn't see unclean spirits come out. Uh, that were frogs of the mouths of the beast and the dragon. He saw unclean spirits that were like frogs. So we'll talk about that. So we already have established that Euphrates River, the Euphrates River, uh, figures predominantly in both the sixth trumpet and in the seventh trumpet. And as you may recall, the sixth trumpet judgment, judgment, uh, there are four demons that bound out of the Euphrates River. So here we have a parallel 
between the Euphrates of the sixth trumpet and the vials of the sixth trumpet. Uh, and there is an army that comes forward thereafter and kills a third of the human race. We talked all about that and what it meant at that time. So here in the sixth bowl judgment, the waters of the great river are dried up to make way for the kings of the east. Now, there are a lot of different ideas of who these kings are. Futurists, people still waiting for all of this to happen, believe the Euphrates will be dried up in the future that will enable a coalition of eastern powers to sweep into the Holy Land and wipe out Israel. Um, and while the implication is that the water is dried up by an act of God, the fact is that it is actual men drying it or diverting it and causing the Euphrates to dry up. You can look at it mystically and believe God will dry it up by the pouring out, or you can believe that men are involved like they were anciently to divert the river. Why the Euphrates? Okay, the Euphrates River is a backdrop for apostates. Uh, most of Israel's enemies in Scripture drank, fed their horses from the Euphrates River. And uh, it's, a, it, it, it's a backdrop also of captivity uh, and exile for Israel and for Judah. And it's a scene of the rise of the great world empires that stood in opposition to God. This is all ancient history about the Euphrates. It's the place from which the Assyrians come to defeat Israel's northern kingdoms and from which the Babylonians, the Persians, and the Medes strike terror in the hearts of their enemies. So it has a great place in the comings and goings of the, uh, the pagan world. All right? And in the days of Jesus' ascension, excuse me, in the days after Jesus' ascension, I'm cast, someone's over there doing wicked things. Talk about frogs coming out of the mouth of beasts over there. Uh, some Israel rebels... The Euphrates is where Rome mounted its troops. So it's, it's actually a focal point in actual military history of where Rome gathered its troops. So we have kind of a fulfillment of these coming from the east, from the Euphrates, and to invade. Also, the Euphrates in Scripture, you will remember if you go back to Genesis, is one of the rivers that borderlines the Garden of Eden. So it has a lot of uh, importance and application. And uh, it's a, it has sustained wicked, it is a living source, but it has sustained a wicked, murderous people against Israel for lot, many, 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 many years. For those who spiritualize the river, it is suggested that the river represents the flow of idolatry, the flow of uh, paganism, and the flow of false teachings into the world. So as a boundary, the Euphrates separates the east from the west. And in many ways, we could say that the Euphrates separates Judaism and Christianity from eastern religion and eastern thought. Uh, we're talking about like Hinduism and Buddhism and all that, all that stuff, Taoism. In John's vision of the sixth trumpet, it's a boundary where evil forces are detained. We read about this way back in chapter... Eight, I think, where the evil forces are detained back there by it until God allows them to come forward. So I think that's what we're seeing here in this final bowl, six bowl pouring out. 
And who are the kings of the east? There are at least 50 interpretations of who the kings from the east are. So I'm not going to cover them, but I'll hit you, give you with some of the major ones of who these kings from the east are. Some think that they uh, are contemporary leaders in our generation, and there's reason you can say that. There's a lot of turmoil in the world, and, you know. Uh, others conclude that they're rulers from the Orient who crossed the Euphrates in the last days to, to launch this great final war, and that's also in the future. Uh, still, s some of them think them as the Parthian cavalry, fierce anti-Romans who came in and wreaked havoc on Roman armies. That's another interpretation. There are those who see these kings as God's tools for wickedness, as ministers of God, breaking down barriers uh, because God has allowed them to enter in and uh, calling his people out of Babylon. There's that. Finally, there are some of the opinion that this is Christ and who will come from the east uh, joining his saints. Because he comes from the east, some believe that. They interpret it that way. I personally believe the most reasonable and historical, historically supported explanation uh, is that the kings of the east are soldiers that were contracted by Rome to assist them in the sacking of Jerusalem in 70 AD. That's how I see who these kings are. Rome said, we need your help, and they came in. By the way, just as an a, a insight that I just read this, I think it was Josephus who said Ro uh, Jerusalem would have never fallen. Every army could have gathered up against Jerusalem, but the way the city was set up, it would never have fallen by an outward attack upon it. It fell because of the inward turmoil, and we're going to cover this next week, I think, of three or four different factions within the city who were fighting each other. Because of that inner turmoil, that city was able to fall by outsider hands. So something to think about. Um, John sees these three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of dragon, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Now, reading through this, most people called the, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet the unholy trinity. That's the word they use. They say we have a holy trinity and now we have an unholy trinity. Um, I'm not sure what I think about the title unholy trinity simply because it, one, it affirms creedal trinitarianism, which I'll be talking about this coming week, um, by its very use, but uh, it doesn't maintain the same characteristics as the trinity is described. For instance, Certainly there are this Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and certainly is there's dragon, beast, and um, false prophet. But that's about where the, the similarities end when you compare the Trinity of God with the unholy Trinity of Revelation. Uh, the unholy Trinity, I don't think, is co-eternal with each other. I don't think the beast, the false prophet, and, but maybe, you know, and, and uh, I'm not sure they're co-equal. Um, maybe there's a similarity in their three separate minds, the way creedal Trinitarianism describes God, uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three separate minds making one God. Um, but I don't know. I always just thought that the beast and the false prophet had the mind of Satan, and that's where they got their power. That's, that's how I've always assumed it. So there's some differences. So for us to just call that the unholy trinity is convenient, but I'm not sure it really applies if you make a, a straight across comparison. 
Anyway, the Euphrates dries up. The spirit demon frogs come out seeking for a home. And this was literally true in the Exodus account. And it is spiritually true here in Revelation. So I think we can say that the bowl being poured out on the Euphrates to stop it up and cause it to dry is symbolic here. That I'm not sure we have to look for a real drying up of the Euphrates. We might uh, if there's actual uh, uh, paid armies coming in from the east to help destroy uh, Jerusalem. Maybe it actually did. But uh, it has to do with the symbol of what has happened in the nation of Israel with the Euphrates and how this is now down upon Jerusalem. So Revelation 16, 13, and I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, the beast, and the mouth of the false prophet. Remember, as we mentioned back in chapter 13, that the same devil, the same beast, the same false prophet are going to be thrown into the lake of fire. Uh, Revelation 19, 20 talks about two of them being thrown in. We're going to read it. It says, but the beast was captured And with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped the image. Which we talked about that being the Roman mark. And two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The two of them, excuse me, were thrown in. So we know that uh, in verse 20 of chapter 19 that both the false prophet and the beast are thrown into the lake of fire here. And then what about the devil? The third part of the unholy trinity, Revelation 20.10 deals with him, saying, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. We're going to come up to that. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay? So there we have the torment day and night forever and ever of three characters in the Bible. I do not think we have any place else where any human being is going to be thrown into that lake of fire because it was created for the devil and his angels. So it was created for the devil, the beast, and the false prophet and his angels. So when we assign that to ourselves, I'm not sure there's a place that can justify that. I know that some will go in, but it doesn't seem to be where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So we'll come across, we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to chapters 19 and 20, which is a culmination of all of we've been discussing uh, and what the future looks like. So prior to this casting of them into the lake of fire, we know that these demons, like frogs, in the beast, the false prophet, and the devil, were miracle workers. That's what they did to influence people to join them, is they were able to perform miracles, and we've covered it at least three different talks we've done in Revelation, where Nero and others were able to do things of a miraculous nature. This is what helped gain the popularity of the people and the power that they had in that day. Now, I know futurists say that this new false prophet and beast will come forward and they will be doing the same miracles. The historicist view of Revelation teaches that it will cycle again. Maybe that's true. That's the historicist view. When I look around at different things in our world sometimes, I wonder, are we in the another phase of this happening to us again? When I look at the flus and the sin and the 
and the, and the homosexuality run rampant and all the stuff that's talked about in terms of last age, you have to say, is this a sign of, of where we're headed? So, uh, but certainly at that time, I think it was fulfilled. Uh, but notice what John says. He says, and I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Now that is definitely symbolic. John is seen in vision the spirit of the devil coming out of the mouths of these three beings. And then he adds, for they are the spirits of devils working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to battle of that great day of God Almighty. The futurists today say they're going to come forward, they're going to heal, they're going to do all kinds of miraculous things, and people are going to believe them. And they're going to come forth, like it says here in verse 14, to gather together and battle against the great day of God Almighty. There's the picture for us. Out of the mouth of God, not literal uh, anthropomorphic mouth, but out of the mouth of God comes his spirit too. His word, his word is spirit. And they are spirit and they are truth, the scripture says. His words of God, when spoken and out of the mouth, give life. His words lead to truth and goodness and eternal life. Um, here we have unclean spirits coming out of the mouth of these three beings, like frogs and of the beast, the dragon, and the false prophet. God cannot lie. He can, his words cannot lie to us. So they lend to life. They are eternal. But it's like the, Satan, Satan could do nothing but lie. And, and, and so these demonic beings entice believers into battle, which they will eventually lose. So their words are leading them to death. The, the frog-like words are calling them to get involved in something that ends in death. They have the power to convince. They have the, the words of death, because that will be the end result. And they are able to do miracles that would convince others to join in a battle against God. And look at if you're going to go into battle against someone, the last person you want it to be is God. Because the end of that battle is death. So we have a principle for this in 1 Kings. It's 1 Kings 22, 21 through 33. It says of Ahab, I'm just going to summarize it down to a couple sentences. As Ahab was drawn to the battle in which he died by the sending of a lying spirit into the mouths of, a prof of the prophets. So Ahab too, he was drawn into the battle in which he died by lying spirits that were in the mouths of the prophets. This is the same picture. Death, lying spirit, mouth. And we have that. And, and, and we have life and we have the true spirit and we have mouth of God. So you, you have it kind of reflected there. Uh, mirrored, as it were. So where the King James reads that these spirits go forth into the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to battle in the great day of God Almighty, a futurist says, see, you know, uh, they are drawn to the whole world. So we know this, and that's what the King James says, and it's plain as day, of the earth and of the whole world 
And again, we have to look at the Greek. Gehe is translated to earth. Oikomenia is translated to world, not cosmos. So if you're going to read that, you would say, they go forth unto the kings of the area, of the Gehe, the earth, and of the... Uh, Oikomenia is where we get the word economy. Unto this administration... This is, this is the administration, this oikomenia. That is where these kings are going to. It's not the whole world. Futurists chomp on it when it says world in, in the King James especially, but it's not whole world there. That's a mistranslation, uh, in my opinion. So if anyone asks you, when has the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, gone out into the whole world to draw kings into the battle of that great day of the Lord, you just say it was a local war. It never is written that the whole world will be drawn into it, even though that's what we try to say. So God releases these spirit demons out of the mouth of the demon and uh, the, demon, the false prophet and the dragon and uh, into the land to gather kings of the whole world into a battle into which they're going to die. Why put it this way? Because when you get into that battle with God, the end is death. Some commentators have gone so far to say these Three unclean spirits are false ideas. There's a commentator that I read often. His name's Albert Barnes. And he describes them as the spirit of paganism. I don't know where he gets this. The spirit of the papacy, which means Roman Catholicism, and the spirit of Islam. He's, he identifies the three spirits in Revelation coming out of the mouth like frogs as Roman Catholicism, Islam, and paganism. You can assign those and think that Albert Barnes is right. Other people uh, will say things like, frogs croak at night, so they're in the dark, and they croak from mires and bogs, muddy, dead, watery type places filled with disease and stuff. That's why frogs are used. And so there's the imagery you want to take from the frogs coming out of, them, out of the mouth uh, that were really dark, evil spirits. So as we've said, Revelation 11.8 identifies Israel as spiritual Sodom. It, uh, it, it readily identifies Israel, uh, especially Jerusalem, as uh, Egypt. And in Exodus, natural Egypt was judged with natural frogs. Again, in Egypt, natural Egypt was judged with natural, real frogs as a type and picture of what was coming down the pike here in Revelation, where spiritual Egypt is now challenged by spiritual frogs croaking, as it were, their lusts and their sickness from the bogs of darkness uh, and spouting out their stuff from the demon, the false prophet, and the... Uh, false prophet, demon, false prophet. And, um, what? The dragon. Thank you. So, Christ speaks words of truth and righteousness to bring peace. These guys are bringing trouble. These speakers. And it's the sixth bowl to be poured out upon them. So, it's the final deal. They're bring, King of Peace brings peace to lives and peace to Israel, uh, uh, to Jerusalem, the city of peace. And now the city of peace has slipped and it's about to become a city of the least peace on the face of the earth. Verse 14, 
gives their capacity to work miracles and they'll use those miracles to bring forth the kings of the earth to go to battle in that last day. Paul warned in 2 Corinthians 11 of false prophets, deceitful workers, and he writes, And no wonder they disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. For Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no great thing if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. That's Paul warning in 2 Corinthians about the capacity these beings have to delude and do things. He says it's, it's no great thing if they're able to do it. So if someone does miracles, let's say that we're wrong about preterism, I'm wrong about it, and futurism is the key, and, and, and we are waiting for all of this to unfold, and there's so many millions and millions of Christians who believe this, and... Uh, then if someone comes along and does great miracles that look like righteous light, big frickin' deal. Pull back and just look at what they represent. Look what they're trying to get you to do, you to believe. How it, how it figures against scripture. And you'll know. So you can't be a miracle-seeking Christian you can be tricked. You can be deluded. He says it's no great thing if his servants disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, right? So powerfully deceptive time at that time. And I'm going to come back to this at the end of this. This was a powerfully deceptive time. But I also want to suggest to you that they were powerfully equipped, powerfully equipped saints. So much so that my Christian walk is a shame in front of them. And we're going to wrap up talking about that, and I'll tell you what I mean by that. So in Matthew 24, Jesus warned about the time when messiahs and false prophets would arise and perform great signs and wonders to lead astray, even if possible, the very elect. He was talking about that day in Matthew 24. He, that's what he was talking about, and that's what Revelation's speaking of, and that's what Paul was talking about, in my estimation. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 2, 9-10, through 10, The coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working with all kinds of false miracles, signs, and wonders, and with every unrighteous deception among those who are perishing. They perish because they did not accept the love of the truth in order to be saved. That's from a very loose translation that I, I decided to use there instead of the King James. I didn't realize how loose it was until I just read it. They throw a lot of stuff in there. Anyway, uh, verse 15, John says, new verse in Revelation. Behold, John hears this, behold, I come as a thief. That, this is what Jesus says. I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watches and keeps his garments, lest he walks naked and they see his shame. So, these are the same types of words Jesus used at the church of Laodicea and the similar words he used to the church at Sardis way back in Revelation chapter 3. I am coming as a thief in the night. Make sure you're wearing your white garments that you've changed into holiness. Make sure, or else you're going to be walking naked. He addressed those seven literal churches, and he told them this, right? 
They ought to buy white garments and get ready because he's coming as a thief. He told his disciples in Matthew 16, 28, that there would be some standing with him that would not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. He said that. We're at an age now in Revelation where it's so far out there, the last of those who were around, you know, who, who were adults during Jesus' life were getting old. And, they, they, and that's who he was talking about. Some of you will not taste death before you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. How? He tells us, as a thief in the night. All who are looking for him will see him. I'm emphasizing this stuff for a reason. This stuff could not have been fulfilled much later than 70 A.D., as most of the generation of, of disciples would have died by that time. So I believe that this coming was Jesus' second coming uh, for his bride to lead the world into the kingdom age, right? Now note two things. First, Jesus says, I'm coming as a thief in the night. He said it in Matthew 24 too. He's repeating it here in Revelation 24. Have you thought about that? Every time I introduce the concept of preterism to some willing soul who pretends to want to talk about it, when I talk about it, they say, well, how, how many people saw him? What, what did they say? Are there records of him coming? Did they write it? Every single person says that. And we're talking about Jesus saying, I'm coming as a thief in the night. Now, how does a thief in the night work? Quietly, secretly. You don't know they're there. That's why they're thieves. They're good. That's how Jesus said, I'm going to come. I'm going to come as a thief in the night. So then what's all this about lightning and thunder from the east and wars and rumors of wars and all this other stuff? Just see it, see it contextually. There were bold, brash signs that could not be ignored by the people of that day. He told them what those signs would be and to watch for them. And he said, when you see this happening, don't even go down into the street to buy some figs. Stay, he didn't say that. Stay up on the rooftop and get the heck out of here. Don't do this. Don't do that. When you see these bold, brash signs, get out of here. Because it's going to be too late if you don't, right? But when he came to take his bride, he was quiet. They're gone. Thief in the night. It wasn't this east from the west shining and all that. And, and people say, but it says all eyes will see him. But Hebrews says everyone who's looking for him would see him. That's how it, how it goes, right? Even if you speak to a futurist today, if you hear a pastor who's preaching futurism, they will say, what's going to happen is Jesus is going to come. He says the thief of the night is going to take away his church. He's going to rapture his believers. And the rest of the world is going to be like the next day, wake up. Well, where's John, that good Christian man? Oh, he probably ran off to the desert to do some crazy thing. I don't know, but his house is empty. Let's take his goods. They even rap, even futurists describe the fallout of the rapture in this day as being just, yeah, who knows, you know. There have probably some convention somewhere, or he ran off and did. Like, every time you hear a, 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 a pastor preaching about the rapture of the church, tying it into him coming as a thief in the night, it's something that happens so suddenly the world isn't even going to know or care. They're just going to take the goods left behind and be glad we're done with these Christians. 
Well, that's what it was. It's true. That, that's proper exegesis of Scripture. He did come as a thief in the night, and he took his bride. And we don't have abundant records of people saying, and there were 7,000 Christians in our community, and the next day they were gone, and we did You're not going to have that, all right? Second thing to notice is that Jesus says again that the bride needs to change into garments of white. That's, that's a metaphor. That is holiness. That's righteousness. To put off the dark works, to put off the, the sins of the flesh, and to change and be ready for him coming. Now, this is the bride of Christ. This is the church. That's how I teach it. Coming to take it. This command cannot be overlooked as the call to holiness and purity and sanctification. And let me tell you this. This is going to get heavy. It's all through the New Testament. I, I said it on the show the other day. There are 1, 000, over 1,050 commandments in the New Testament. We talk about being saved, and we talk about his grace, and it's true. It's there. But if you were going to put them on a scale, grace and, and, and salvation by grace through faith is up here. It's lightweight. The content of the New Testament to the believers then was, you better walk it now. You better get in line. You better be in harmony by Christ being in you. You better be in harmony with the day that's coming to be taken. You have to be ready. You have to change your garment into the garments of white if you're going to be ready to be taken. And the command was so powerful, it's overlooked by believers today. It's too much in my estimation. I'm preaching something heavy here. I think we read the New Testament and we, ab we actually experience a, the, the, a disconnect in our mind. When it tells us that you got to do this and you got to do that and you got to be this and you got to avoid this and you got and you start reading it and pretty soon, if you're going to keep reading, you've got to compartmentalize that stuff and say, well, I do through Jesus, I do through Jesus. But this was right there in ink for us to read what they were challenged by the apostles to do, right? It causes me, I have to be a little personal here, to really examine my heart and life and my actions as a Christian. Who am I as a Christian? And let me tell you something. I am, admittedly, I don't just feel, I know I am a lesser sanctified, not through the blood of Christ, but the same. I'm a lesser, mature Christian by a landslide to what these Christians were in that day. Uh, and so with that being the fact, I have a fact that I read about what I'm supposed to be and what the apostles told them to do and be, and I have those facts there, and then I have me and my life. And I look at that and I think, I am failing. Because I am. I'm failing. You, you name the way I'm failing in it. You know, forget about it. This is a, a violent, judgmental, pornographic, lustful, drunken world I live in. And I relate to that world sometimes more than I want. I can't hold a candle to these 144,000. Can't hold a candle to them. And the apostles and what they were preaching then was right on for them. 
Because that's who Jesus was coming to take. The faithful who lived their faith and went through all those trials and tests and he gathered that bride up dressed in white and that was his church, you see? So I am personally convinced at this point of the following and I admit some of it might be just to be able to live with myself. And you know, I know people pretty well. I talk to people all the time and most of us are here. I, I very rarely find a man or a woman, when you get down to it, who really walks the Christian walk the way it's described that we're to walk it here in the New Testament. And if they do outwardly, you know, they really seem to really live sanctified lives of holiness, you talk to them long enough, you find out that they can, they probably have the heart of a rat when it comes to judging other people. They become pious. So, you know, you, you can outwardly live it pretty well. Sit down with those guys who look like they're walking on water, but get into the contents of their heart through a discussion, and you'll discover that their heart towards certain things in this world is just as evil and boggish as yours is in the flesh. So what, what do you do? I'm convinced of the following. I think the apostolic church and those who were of it, mostly converted Jews, remember that, who loved God and lived God and were looking for a Messiah and obeyed the law. Just like the rich young ruler came to Jesus, he says, I've done this, I've done this since my whole youth. And what does, Jesus, what does it say? It says, and Jesus loved him. Yeah. And, and, they're, and they accept the Messiah that was promised to them, coming out from under the law, and they accept the Messiah. Holy cow, these people were straight up God lovers like no other. Sold out seekers of God, Coming to Jesus, being regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and then having the spiritual capacity to really walk the Christian life. They did. Look at their history. I think the Gentiles, Paul invited them in. Those, those books that, that we read from Paul are for us too, because we can relate to what's necessary for us to get in, in the kingdom, which is his grace by our faith. Thank God, skin of our teeth, we are going to get in that kingdom because of the grace that it's bestowed upon. But that church, that bride, was radically devout. They put me to shame because I can't read the Bible and compete with them in any sense, shape, or form if they're following all that's written in there. I'm frankly ashamed of it. I am ashamed of it. Uh, the 144,000, though, we read about them. They were, th were without spot. They were without the, it says, uh, they didn't have, lo lost their virtue, is how it put it. And uh, I've always explained my faith as I sincerely believe I am the worst of the worst being saved by the best of the best. That's the way I can see it now. Other people are not that way. They're better and whatever, but that's how I see myself in relationship to this gospel. So if I have something even close to what I read in the New Testament, saints possessing, if, I don't, if I'm not even close to it, I'm screwed because I'm not close to it. Those 1,050 commandments, I am not close to it. But when you read Revelation, Jesus seems to be telling them to be close to it. 
and this is truly no good thing in me, and, and so I can't boast on my works, and so I'm ashamed when I read it. The wretched man I am is unable to refrain from tapping into getting angry and being judgmental and being lustful and uh, uh, not, not liking my enemies, not loving my enemies, bearing grudges, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, pride of life, always coming back on me, coming back on me. And I'm just one man living here in 2018 who is still loving and trying to seek Christ, just like maybe you are. So we're brought to an impasse. Here it is. Believe that I have to get myself to the level of the New Testament Christians. There's the first one. I must get to the level of the New Testament Christians that's described in the New Testament by the apostles and is reiterated by Christ in the book of Revelation that they have to be without spot, holy, and white garments because he's coming to take them in order to be pleasing to God or I have to believe that these saints as the bride of Christ were special and different, empowered with a, a history as being uh, Orthodox Jews, empowered with the Spirit, empowered with the Holy Spirit falling on Pentecost and being empowered to overcome the world in all its forms to be his bride. And that men and women today are not capable of possessing this high degree of holiness. That's the second way. Or they are the real Christians that we're reading about. And unless we are just like them, you're not a real Christian. So there's your three options. When we look at the, the New Testament, with just frank, clear eyes. That, those are the three options. And really quickly, I have to get myself to that level. Or they were of a certain type of believer then that warranted, remember Jesus came for his own. They warranted being his bride. That is who God gave him as his, as his gift, his bride, 144,000 that he took with him. And we then are saved by grace by the skin of our teeth. Thank God. Because it can't be an admixture of all those things, I don't think. There's no sort of, you know. So I'm serious. I can't live at the level that some around me seem to live, especially at the level of these early Christians. And I can either admit this and let the chips fall where they may, have faith and hope in God's approbation for me through the blood of his son, or I can try to live up to that level and I don't have it in me to do it. Neither do you. I don't think you do. If you think you do, write me an email and tell me how you live up to that level. I want to understand it. Or we admit that this was a dispensation of empowered people by the Spirit where Christ was coming to get them. And we are a kingdom of believers by faith, saved by his grace. And he, God, turns a blind eye to our failures as Christians. And I do believe that latter part. Or I wouldn't be up here preaching. Verse 16. And he gathered them, this group I'm talking about, together into a place called the Hebrew, in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. Now, there's different debates on Armageddon, and we've already covered it, so I'm not going to talk too much about it. But just put it this way. There's a plain of Megiddo, and the plain of Megiddo is where, in the history of the Jews, battles were fought, bloody battles. 
And so historists say that Armageddon is a cycle of battles that the world goes through whenever it's being preyed upon by an oppressive power. They would say that World War II was an Armageddon. Um, the plain of Megiddo, which was, remember, it represented to a Jew where battles and wars are done. There's an author named John No, and he says that when it says Armageddon, that the Greek is silent in Hebrew. There is no, it's Ha-Megiddo. It's H-A Hebrew, Megiddo. Ha means mountain. Mountain. Okay? So when, when the futurists write books and they talk about the valley of uh, Megiddo, it's a valley, it's incongruent with the word Ha-Megiddo or Armageddon. Because what that, what that word means is we've taken what happens in that valley, Megiddo, and we add mountain to it. So it becomes the mountain of what happens in Megiddo. That's Ha-Megiddo or Armageddon, you see? And that's why most preterists believe that Armageddon is Jerusalem. That is where the real thing is coming down upon everybody. Armageddon was played out in the mountain of the Lord where Megiddo took place, like the Megiddo of the valley. And that makes a lot of sense to me now because um, you can't justify there to be a valley war called Armageddon in the valley of Megiddo with the word ha or ar there, silent in the, Greek, silent in the Hebrew, before the word Megiddo. So all it is saying is that if, if Washington, D.C. is the place of bureaucracy, governmental bureaucracy, it's like saying, ha, Washington, D.C. This is the ha, Washington, D.C. It's the Washington, D.C. in the mountains, is what they're saying. It's a metonym for everything that occurs. Badness in Megiddo, now it's in the mountains. Megiddo has been moved up to the mountain, which is, uh, and so that's what I think he's saying is happening there. That's how I would describe it. And it takes us to, uh, and you know, I've already given you the scriptures in weeks past of how when you're in, in scripture, I got 15 passages here where anytime you're in Israel, when you go to Jerusalem, you go up. It is the mountain of the Lord. You go up. So we know it's God's holy mountain too, called in scripture and Psalms. So that is the mountain where this Megiddo bloodbath will take place. Verse 17, last one, last couple for the day. And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, it is done. Big passage, you guys. Huge passage. It is done. Got to ask yourself, what does that mean? When an angel from heaven, after all of these vials and things, announces it is done. Partially done, fully done. Which city is this judgment falling upon? I would say it's Jerusalem. And uh, some people think it's Rome, but I think it's Jerusalem. And when we get to Revelation 17, we'll talk more and more about evidence for that. It is done. What is done? All of the judgments are over. All right. Then verse 18, and there were voices, okay, the angel says it's done. Then there's voices, thunders, and lightnings, 
And there was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. It is done, there's an earthquake. When Jesus says it is finished, we read in Matthew that there was an earthquake and the veil was written too. No, same kind of thing. Jesus says it's finished, earthquake. Now we have the angel say it is done and suddenly we have all this stuff going on and the emphasis in verse 18 is on the earthquake. There's voices, thunders, lightnings. We've talked about the imagery of those, but there was a great earthquake such as was not since men were upon the earth and so mighty an earthquake and was so great. So, uh, the word earthquake, really quickly in the New Testament, it's seismos, where we get seismograph, seismic activity. And in scripture, it is used to describe turbulent seas, earthquakes, winds that uh, blow turbulently. Okay? Storm tossed seas, earthquakes, winds that blow turbulently. Seismos is used for all of those. So we know it's a commotion of some sort. It doesn't say earthquake in the Greek, but it's translated earthquake. I think we're better, we're closer to it by saying there was a great commotion there. But, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, I don't, they, they gave the word earthquake there, maybe for a reason. But it ties us to this one final thing that's brought out for us. In uh, one more time, I got to do it. In Hebrews chapter 12, if you don't know this chapter yet and the contents, you got to know it now because this is what the writer of Hebrews tells the believers then, Jews who had converted to Christ. You have not come to the mount that might be touched, that burned with fire, nor unto blackness or darkness and tempest. Listen, Jews who converted to Christ, you're not going back to Mount Sinai here. That's not what's happening. You're not going to a place that you can't touch, that burned with fire, and that was black and dark and terrifying. And the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice that they heard and entreated a word should not be spoken to them anymore. And he goes on and says in verses 20 that, listen, if an animal even touched that mountain, which you came from, our forefathers came from, if an animal touched it, it would be stoned to death. That's how holy this mountain is. He, the writer of Hebrews says, you didn't come from that. You didn't come to that. You haven't come to that scene. Got it? And so terrible was the sight, verse 21 of Hebrews 12, that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Okay? You haven't come to this. Verse 22, he says, but you've come to Mount Zion. And unto the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable company of angels, and to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which is written in the heavens, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkling of blood that speaks of better things than Abel spoke about. And he says, so don't refuse the one who speaks. Don't refuse the apostles who preached this word to you. And then he quotes from Haggai and says, God said whose voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, but now he has promised saying, yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also the heaven. And this word yet once more means the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made 
things that are made are shaken, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. So the writer of Hebrews says, you haven't come to Mount, Zion, you haven't come to Mount Sinai where it's terrifying, you're going to be killed if you even touch it. You have come, and he gives them a whole list of Mount Zion, the living God, the new Jerusalem, and heaven, angels, and God, and Judd, and all this stuff. And then he says, and listen, God promised that one more time he's going to shake everything up so that anything that is made will be destroyed. Anything that's made will be destroyed. Shaken, and he adds, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Meaning, Things of God that are spiritual, they will remain. Yet one more time, he says, that will happen. And he says, wherefore, we receive a kingdom which cannot be moved. That's present tense. We receive. That's the kingdom they got then. Before this big shaking earthquake happened in Revelation, they had already received a kingdom that could not be moved. He says, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear for God is a consuming fire. I would so strongly suggest that when the angel here in Revelation says it's done, all the judgments poured out, finished, finito, seals, trumpets, vials, seventh poured out, armies coming in, bloodshed, million one, Jews killed, eating each other, horrible scene, Josephus tying it all together. He says, it is done, and the next verse, and an earthquake shook that has never been seen with men on earth. And it was a seismos that shook heaven, and it shook earth. And what most commentators say is, what Hebrews is talking about is the end of the old economy. Being wiped out then, shaken to dust. So the only thing that will remain is the new economy which is spiritual, which is heavenly, which is directed by our king on his throne through the spirit to people who are part of his body here on the earth today and going in the past. So when men and women decide to create something that can be shaken, they are going against what God set up. All the buildings, all the money, all the dress, all the codes, all the laws, all the rules, all the baptisms and ordinances that men continue to create, God shook to the dust so that the only thing that would remain cannot be shaken. And in this I have my hope. Because in what cannot be shaken that's in me, I have my strength. I cannot be shaken in the spirit of God that dwells in me by Christ Jesus. So the shakable things in me, which is my eyes and my lust and my anger and my opinions and all that stuff, that stuff is still getting rocked. And I look to that and think that that's me, but that's not me. The kingdom of God is within us. We are part of his kingdom. We don't have to despair. We are part of a place that can't be shaken by this world. If you, if you belong to something that can be shaken, you have placed your feet on a faulty foundation. Don't buy into any of that. Buy into him and what happened here in Revelation where the angel said it's done and then 
God says, okay, Haggai prophecy being fulfilled, and it's all shaken down to nothing. So the only thing that can remain is him and us, where God says in that day, I will write my laws upon their hearts and upon their minds. And no man will say to his neighbor, know the Lord, know the Lord. For every man will know the Lord from him writing his laws upon their hearts and minds. Completely subjective. And you and I are responsible before God for the lives we live in Christ. And, and there is such liberty in that. And there's also accountability in that. But we don't need to reinsert men and buildings and orders to do it. We'll continue on with this next week. Questions, comments, Larry is our Vanna White this afternoon. It's appropriate. We have one of our former decathlete, Bruce Jenner, as someone else now. Larry is our Vanna White. Oh, we have a call. Let's go to Alicia. Yes. Hi. Hi. You're on the air. I am. You are. It's as oh, bad as Tuesday night. Oh, is this on? It happens to be. Oh, my heavens, your voice sounds so different <laughs> on the phone. Well, hi, I've been missing you. We miss you, Alicia. Are you enjoying church at home? Well, well, yeah, I have to. I have to enjoy it at home. But yes, I am enjoying it at home. <laughs> well, we miss you. You know, I miss you guys so bad. We miss you too, Alicia. Okay. Well, hey, let me tell you something. When you said, when you were talking about how the Trinity and the Holy. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, my spirit, the Holy Spirit made me sick. I mean, it, was so, it made me so sick. I went, whoa, nothing but Trinity should be. You're, you're right about that. Well, we stop doing that then. We'll stop calling it the unholy trinity. All right, my sister, we love you. Love you. Give love to Brent. Love you too. Okay, talk to you later. Bye. Anybody in house have any heresy to share? Opinions to. All right, let's pray. Lord, uh, love you and pray that we'll understand the concepts that are true and forget the stuff that's not. We want to walk in truth. Um, we want to be Christian. That's why we're sitting here on a Sunday afternoon and we're just trying to hear something to grow and understand you more. To, for to know you and your son is life eternal. We pray for our sister Diana and her recovery. We pray for Liz and her recovery. We pray for the people who are on the list constantly for their cancer treatments and the things they're fighting. We pray that you will be with them, people who are recovering from physical and emotional and psychological ailments. We pray for Gracie and uh, that you will help her and her family, this child suffering from uh, cancer and battling it with chemo and radiation, that you will bless her and you will help her to recover and give her long life and help her grow all her hair back and Help her mom and dad who are dealing with this. Very, very difficult thing. I pray that you'll bless my grandson, Samson, and you'll help him and the doctors to determine what's going on with him and his legs and uh, that they will be inspired. I pray that you will bless anybody whose names aren't on this list who have a hurting heart. 
who have a longing to know you but feel they don't, who are wandering in faith and can't seem to establish their feet firmly on you, the rock, and uh, just help us to move forward as people of faith, people who love, people who realize in our flesh we have nothing that is good. Uh, but in our spirit, we have everything that is you. And we pray for this now in Jesus' name. Amen.